it gives Sabina and myself the greatest pleasure to welcome you all to Oris and Uthron, celebrating, as I have just said, 50 years of the National Women's, since the establishment of the National Women's Council. And I am particularly pleased to have had the opportunity already meeting so many people who have been involved over the decades in campaigning and in achieving so much uh, across, as I said, all the decades and in different parts of Ireland and in different parts of our society. When you look back to 1973, it's very hard to believe that accepting uh, the fundamental rights of women uh, came as late as it did. The question of women's rights is one that engages the fundamental structures and core values of society. I've been looking at this, indeed, uh, during the period of commemorations, uh, the centenary commemorations we've had here in, uh, in Oris and Othron. And it would take a, a whole other fortnight, not a meeting just like we're having now, to discuss what happened between 1922 in a minimalist constitution and the 1937 constitution, which marked what could not be described as progress between 1922 and 1937. <laughs> but as I said, that would take me a fortnight to, uh, to discuss. But I think women's rights is one, as I have said, that engages the fundamental structures and core values of our society. And failure to achieve gender equality in terms of the fullest participation, in terms of equal access, not just to resources and opportunities, but also to versions of the self, regardless of gender, including the economic participation and decision-making, as well as the ability to value different behaviours aspirations and needs equally, regardless of gender, and failure to deliver a context that makes this possible, just diminishes not just women, but diminishes us all. And I think that this is an agenda with which everyone gathered in this room has been familiar. And as I have said, I congratulate you for all of the work that you have done. It is important that in policy responses, we recognise that women's experiences are heterogeneous, that their diverse expression is reflected. It's reflecting geography, culture, ethnicity, age and social class. And while we must achieve a wider recognition of the values, experiences and cultures that women from diverse backgrounds bring to all levels of society, we must repeat again and again and I do so regularly in my speeches, that no cultural barrier should stand in the way of what are the vindication of the fundamental rights of women. All of you here know all too well that the women's movement does not represent in the Irish case any niche evolution, but it has been one of a progressive struggle, both in politics and in practice and in life. It has been one of conflict and hard-fought gains incrementally achieved. And in order to build on what has been achieved in gender equality, we must recognise the fundamental truth that is manifested in the gendered nature of inequality and injustice. 
As the National Women's Council reaches its milestone anniversary of a half century and we're celebrating it here in the home of the President, I suggested it serves better purpose to consider the nature and scale of the journey that is yet to be completed to achieve the full enjoyment of women's rights, recognition of women's experience and full gender equality both in Ireland and globally. As in to 1973, and there are some people here who've just been meeting who were at that conference in 1978, which was the very first conference against violence against women. But in 70, Hilda Tweedy of the Irish Housewives Association must be given credit for setting up the Council for the Status of Women, as it was then called with the goal of gaining equality for women. And that was the year, of course, that Ireland had entered the European Economic Community this year. And I'm delighted to have ABP Francis Fitzgerald with us. That the year the Irish government in joining the DEC was forced, for example, to abandon the disgraceful marriage bar under which women had to leave their jobs when they married. My wife Sabina among them. Uh, I'm not so sure that she wasn't. She wasn't weeping when she left. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, uh, but, but she did have great colleagues. And, uh, and, uh, but 74, the marriage bar. And over the early years, the council campaigned for the implementation, of course, of the findings of the reports of the Commission on the Status of Women in 72 and 73. In 1995, following a strategic review, of course, the National Women's Council of Ireland became the new name. And that organisation, which I'm so pleased that we're able to celebrate today, is one that has built its membership base to include 160 groups across the island of Ireland, with a growing focus, I'm so pleased to say, on marginalised women, poverty, and something that is so important, uh, violence against women. From an international policy perspective, the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action continues to be a pivotal point of reference on gender equality for governments, civil society and the public. Its 12 critical areas of concern have provided both a focus for concerted intervention as well as a structure to monitor progress and identify effective practices on gender equality. For Ireland, the impact of the Beijing Declaration was notable in encouraging the development of gender equality legislation since the mid-1990s, profoundly influencing the successive frameworks of policies and actions under and related to the National Women's Strategy, through which the efforts of government agencies, civil society, trade unions and businesses were asked to promote equal treatment of men and women and which attempts were made at coordination. But at, I think at the most general level of society, while the scourge of violence against women is no longer a taboo subject, one to be kept hidden within the family or household, and is increasingly being viewed and discussed as a human rights issue of urgent concern to both women and men on this island, yet the facts reveal that one of the darkest consequences of the recent COVID pandemic has been the serious escalation on levels of domestic violence during the period of COVID. This shadow epidemic of domestic abuse was perhaps accelerated by some of the pandemic emergency measures necessary as they were, such as quarantines, restricted movements, separation from family and friends, and increased working from home. Shockingly, calls to Gardaí regarding domestic violence increased by as much as a quarter during the lockdowns. 
and the channeling of resources towards emergency service provision, although critical to saving lives, put huge pressure on existing services. And there's a lesson in that, is that we do need a far more coordinated response to violence against women and girls. And that response must place at its core the issues facing traveller, Roma, migrant and disabled women, all of whom reported significant difficulties accessing domestic violence accommodation during the pandemic. And recently I have been looking at health statistics as they affect women in the travelling community. And it is shocking the disparity that there is in terms of uh, what they are suffering. While we've been successful then in breaking down traditional and stereotypical career expectations for girls and boys, so welcome that so many girls are now studying science, for example, politics too and the high reaches of business and academic life are examples of sectors in which the predominance of men and the struggle to transform the working environment to one more inclusive of women needs to continue getting further scrutiny. The unexplained gender gap, pay gap, remains. For despite progress in Ireland, this gap stands at 11.3%, just behind the European Union average, which at 2020 was 13%. I think that's a relying on Eurostat for that figure. While unequal pay has been illegal in the state since 1975, greater pay transparency is needed to tackle this ongoing form of discrimination. And may I suggest that current efforts to improve, and I do so strongly believe this, the unionisation of underrepresented sectors, such as carers, most of whom are female, I believe will yield good results. The United Nations 2030 Agenda and related sustainable development goals, and particularly goal number five, <clears throat> is aims to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. And it remains our globally accepted blueprint for an inclusive, more equal future. The goal recognises, importantly, that gender equality is not only a fundamental human right, but a necessary foundation for a peaceful, prosperous and sustainable world in harmony with Mother Nature. I should say by that it's something struck me very strikingly when I was looking at the origin of climate change destruction and how it has come to be and the intellectual body of work that sustained it from the very beginning, because they did have that. And it was, I think, back in the 17th century, you got that phrase, I lead to you, Mother Nature, for your use to gouge out her secrets and so forth. And I think we need to reflect on that. And it is very encouraging that in some of the more progressive administrations, for example, in South America, they recognise nature. And they recognise, if you like, this place, Madre Natura. Yes, there has been progress over the last decades. But if the world is not on track to achieve gender equality equity by 2030. I was recently speaking in Senegal at the second Dakar Food Summit, which focused on food sovereignty in Africa. And in my address, I emphasised the issue of gender as it pertains to food security in Africa. Right across the African continent, the achieving of zero hunger requires gender-inclusive land and labour policies. And while globally meaningful policies must prioritise the inclusion of women and girls who are more food insecure than men in every region of the world, 
And this gender gap in food security has grown exponentially in recent years and will only deteriorate further in the absence of targeted intervention. Women form more than 40% of the agricultural labour force in sub-Saharan Africa. And there is no contract protecting workers across the continent that is longer than two years. Women are not only victims of the food crisis, they, in the most demanding circumstances, produce, there is an argument it is, as to whether 70 or 80% of foodstuffs. How, whatever way you look at it, empowering women farmers is a crucial measure if for transformative and a transformative tool for food security. But it is vital that female farmers are limited when you look at the statistics right across the continent, not just in terms of in physical inputs, seeds, fertilizers, storage facilities, to land itself. And some of the cooperative best ones that I looked at it that with interest rates of 19%. These are scandalous exclusions of women, as I said, working in these circumstances. The strong connection between gender and food security highlights the importance of recognising the necessity of women's participation in policy design and responses. Women's rights are spreading and strengthening across Africa. There's been a gradual increase in women involved in decision-making processes. But women, for example, in some countries like Ghana, are being encouraged to compete with men, with men for minuscule wages, and in doing so, neglecting their plots, where many of them were using for the, for the production of their household food. All of this is disastrous. So continued efforts at engaging women as leaders and agents of change and decision-making is central to our policy response to food security in Africa. And it requires a much needed paradigm shift in the discourse on food security, where these issues are not central to the discourse at the moment. And while some achievements have also been made in the elimination of violence against women and girls at the global level, violence and coercion are increasing, in particular in zones of conflict. Gender inequality exacerbates the impact of disasters whose consequences compounded. With the world already facing a grown number of climate-related tragedies, we must continue to draw attention to the need for investment in those services and infrastructure that would deliver gender equality, universal health care, water and sanitation, education, social protection. And as to responding to the interacting crisis of our time, including responding to the consequences of climate change, women's role in decision-making, it is depressing that out of 110 leaders present at last year's United Nations COP27 climate change summit, only seven were women. This disproportionality is largely sourced in the composition of the delegation teams taking part in the negotiations, with only on average one third of COP delegation members being female, and up to 90% male in some cases. This is problematic not just on gender equality grounds, but also because climate change disproportionately impacts girls and women. The United Nations estimated that approximately 80% of climate refugees are female. In the face of climate-induced instability, girls drop out of school and marry earlier. Instances of gender-based violence increase, and women must take greater risks to secure fuel, food and water for their families. And as to participation, 
we still see a gender bias in education globally. And what an appalling statistic it is that globally an estimated 130 million girls will never set foot inside a classroom, losing out on opportunities, not just for sustainable futures, but reinforcing established intergenerational dynamics of poverty and inequality. And unfortunately, too, in terms of access to healthcare, gender inequality continues to contribute to high levels of female mortality. I've given the instance of the members of the travelling community in Ireland, but each day almost a thousand women die from preventable complications related to pregnancy and childbirth in countries where there is poor or unequal access to equality healthcare. Accessing water for their families in the poorest regions of the world remains a task that women frequently are forced to undertake. More than 2 billion people worldwide do not have access to clean water. According to UNICEF, women and girls spend a collective 200 million hours sourcing water every day, time that could be spent studying in school or in employment. This high price of collecting water will only be tackled through comprehensive investment and provision of essential water infrastructure and universal basic services. As to some of the other challenges then we face, child marriage and other forms of gender-based violence remain as strong, remain as among the greatest scourges that we must tackle and with increased energy. Again, relying on UNICEF figures, more than 700 million women were married before they turned 18. More than a third of that number were married before the age of 15. Child marriage affects girls disproportionately and is deeply linked to poverty. Girls who marry young are less likely to complete their education and child brides often suffer higher discrimination, violence and increased maternal mortality rates. Forced and early marriage is but one of many forms of violence against women and girls, which includes sexual violence, female genital mutilation, trafficking and so-called honour killings. All forms of gender-based violence contribute to the belief that men and women can be treated differently based on gender stereotypes that vary in intensity, ignorance and bogus rationalisations from culture to culture. Cultural rationalisations of gender violence, I repeat, must never be tolerated. Such violence is now correctly considered in ever more legislatures as a form of hate crime, needing to be called out for what it is, an abuse of rights usually sourced in a false and dangerous sense of entitlement, superiority, misogyny or similar attitude in the perpetrator's dominant position. And while such abuse remains in place, is not confronted, the rights of women will continue to be hampered by the false belief that these forms of violence are part of the norm and acceptable. This is an area of policy which must be returned to at the United Nations at every level. There should be no boundaries to access to universal rights. Women's rights for all of us, women, men and children, remain one of the great ethical challenges of our time. When the international community fails women, it fails humanity. As to the future, we must recognise how inspirational working for the fullest recognition of the woman's experience can be. How we, all women and men too, 
can draw inspiration from feminism, from those great feminists who have written and offered their lives with a philosophical and intellectual authority, such as Simone de Beauvoir, to help us address our contemporary challenges. So may I take this opportunity too, it's appropriate to pay tribute to my wife Sabina's lifelong work as an activist for women's rights, and in particular, for example, her advocacy on the topic of breastfeeding, which I know has been appreciated by so many mothers over the years and by women who have become mothers recently and who are so welcome here at the Auras. And it is so important on that issue, that issues of trade advantage not defeat what is a principle recognised by the World Health Organisation in relation to breastfeeding. Women's rights did not fall from the sky. They were achieved incrementally by activists like yourselves gathered in this room. I take the opportunity to thank you again, all of you through the decades, who are tirelessly playing important roles in the National Women's Council and at various levels. Many institutional gains, as I conclude, may I say this, but there remains so much to be done to achieve a republic of true equality, and there remain so many areas where respect for the rights of women remains at best an aspiration rather than real lived experience. But the past 50 years tells us change is possible and it can be made to happen. The realisation of women's rights, appropriate recognition of the woman's experience in its fullest sense, remains one of the great ethical challenges of our age for women and for men, for all who share an ethical commitment to equality, social justice, and universal express for human rights. Solidarity among women and between women and men has never been more important. So let us all cooperate together to continue to create a future of respect and freedom across the sex, a more equal, inclusive, peaceful, and harmonious society one that supports a flourishing human diversity on this vulnerable planet, a peaceful world beyond violence, conflict, and ever-threatening war and its machinery of death that offers destruction to all and generates profit for the insatiable few. May I wish you every success for the future. Good night.